This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Hey, it's Alex Pearson from On Point. Today on the podcast, Catherine McKenna is once again victim of a vile attack in person and on social media. We look at the toxic conditions for politicians of all stripes. Then we speak to Michael Barrett, Shadow Minister for Ethics on today's We Scandal updates. And we'll finish off by digging into controversial Canadian prank YouTubers and their total disregard for COVID-19 restrictions. Why do kids watch this? It's unacceptable. Uh, I don't know what more to say. I mean, the law enforcement is involved, uh, but make sure that we stand up against this, uh, that this isn't an isolated incident. Uh, it's not just involving me, my staff members, uh, my family. Uh, this Too often there are incidents against politicians, often female politicians. And I mean, the good news is I don't think Canadians uh, have any time for this, generally, but it's continuing to happen. It's not a hate crime, but it is not okay to act like a boorish pig to public officials or anyone else. And yes, that would include Catherine McKenna. Alex Pearson with you on this Tuesday, August 11th. And far be it for me to defend a politician I find thoroughly annoying and who I fundamentally disagree with about just about everything. But here I go. Um, So the backstory is that Ottawa police are now investigating an incident which happened at McKenna's office last week. And of course, you know, a man showed up asked to speak with the minister and then launched into this verbal tirade to a staffer before loading it up onto social media. She says she's spending $5 billion, $10 billion a year on infrastructure. The PBO office, Yves Giroux, says she's only spending $5 billion a year. What's up with that? I, I, can't really I don't go to work every day and bust my for this to steal our money. You're all scumbags. You're all pieces of trash. You scumbags. You're all kid pieces of trash, just like Justin Trudeau. Raping kids, we charity. Sorry, kids in Africa. This money isn't for you. This money's for Justin Trudeau and his family. They need it a lot more than you. They need a bigger yacht. They need a bigger watch. They need five watches that are 20 grand. The f***ing scumbag pieces of I hope you all burn in f***ing hell. You're all going to get what you deserve, you f***ing traitors. Mm. All right, look, I get the guy's frustration. It is not a hate crime. I mean, he could get nailed for maybe uttering threats mischief uh but you need only look at his social media to tell you he doesn't just hate mckenna he hates trudeau and anything liberal i mean he's been walking around ottawa making video videos uh uttering his disdain and then posting it so mckenna's not his only target i just don't get how this moron thought it would go over well you know yeah it'll get some clicks and likes because i think probably a lot of people kind of quietly think this but the actual grievance he's got will be ignored because Stunts like this don't win political debates. And as McKenna explains, she's not the only one. I don't think I had any idea that it would be like this in politics. I mean, most days it's great. You know, you work hard with Canadians to get things done. Uh, but we've certainly seen an escalation. And it's it's not just me. You see it across party lines. We saw it, Shannon Phillips, my former uh, environment counterpart in Alberta, 
Uh, we've seen it happen to other members of parliament, in particular women, uh, racialized uh, politicians, indigenous politicians. You know, it's, it is accelerating, and I think that we've seen a lot of what's happened south of the border come up here, and it is exacerbated by social media. So the guy was questioning billions of infrastructure dollars that uh, McKenna has not been able to account for. And it is a very valid question. And it is one that is being asked by the parliamentary watchdog, Yves Giroux. But thanks to the, the nuttery, you see, it gets lost in the chaos. But it is an actual issue. You just don't present it like that. And now that everyone's got a platform what it does is give them permission to say and do whatever they like because there's very little consequence albeit this guy probably is uh heading for a call to a lawyer but uh, look civility's dead especially when it comes to politics and it's going to drive a lot of good people away from entering public life i mean i get asked all the time why don't you run in politics and i'm like are you kidding me who the hell who the hell wants to sign up for that you know, people showing up at your front door and harassing your neighbors. No, thank you. There's very little upside. I looked at it for about two seconds and said, no, thank you. My point is, you know, you don't have to like your elected officials. You can be rightfully enraged with this government, but you get your revenge at the ballot box. You know, you protest, you speak out, you get the issues actually seen and leave the lunacy at home. Because there is nothing but ammunition to go after this government with. And I actually, I laughed today because Andrew Scheer, I think, summed it up perfectly. As for smoking guns, though, um, there are so many smoking guns in the Swiss scandal. I mean, you could smoke a brisket in the Liberal cabinet room <laughs> right now. <laughs> it's true. There's so much going on right now with this government. I mean, well, you just look at the frothing. You got frothing over reports that uh, Finance Minister Bill Moore knows about to see the bottom of a bus. Globe and Mail reporting uh, there have been clashes between Trudeau and Morneau because they see the economic recovery differently. And then this afternoon, the prime minister's office issued a statement saying, no, 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 the story is false because we have nothing but confidence in Mr. Morneau. And then you look at their actions. They've got so much confidence in the finance minister that they've actually decided to bring in Mark Carney to advise Trudeau. I mean, nothing spells confidence in your finance minister than bringing in an outsider to do his job. I mean, you try to square that circle. The bottom line is, Morneau will be a sacrificial lamb for the wee scandal. And he'll join the civil service, which is already under the bus, and Jane Philpott and Jody Wilson-Raybould and anybody else who has met the bus. But the top civil servant, Ian Sugar, you know, he was called back today to the committee finance hearings because some of what we've heard from Telford and Trudeau, is, nah, it doesn't make sense. Not adding up. It's inconsistent. And he was asked to explain, you know, how can you claim any due diligence was done on we given all the red flags? And it's crystal clear again from today, none was done because he was too busy making sure Justin Trudeau got cover. I, ju I just think that there are certain matters of public policy that uh, the Prime Minister is the leader of the government and is of necessity going to be involved. I think this is a conundrum that, that certainly we at PCO will reflect on going forward. Um, you are an exceptional public servant and uh, I, uh, I think it is terrible 
the way that the Prime Minister has thrown you and the public service under the bus, the way that he has implied that you and your organization is to blame, and I want you to know Mr. Paul, that Her Majesty's, Majesty's official opposition does not believe it for a second. The wheels on the bus go round and round, round and round, round. Oh, oh, never mind. They go round and round until you run over somebody. Is today's political climate keeping good people out of office? That was uh, one of the suggestions made by Catherine McKenna, who says social media and the attacks, the threats, the smears are simply driving people away from serving in political life. She also stated that the division and rhetoric we see on the other side of the border has come here to Canada and that social media should be held responsible. And this is, of course, in um, response to someone showing up at her office berating one of her staff, and now the police are investigating it. Let's bring in Catherine Stewart. She is a lawyer with Milburn and Associates. And the reason I wanted to talk to you in particular, Catherine, is because you have a lot of political experience, so you understand how that kind of world works. And you also know the law. Um, I don't think this reaches the level of a hate crime, so I, I don't want to spend too much time on that. But for me, I don't like this kind of ugliness on either side because we do see it right and left. Politics yeah. today is vicious. Yeah, exactly. I, you know, one of the things I think that makes politics a lot more nasty than it used to be is that people feel like they have all this access to politicians that they normally, you know, didn't used to have. Like people feel that they can directly contact politicians through social media and they know a lot more about, you know, the politicians' personal lives and their comings and their goings. And that just, that, that civility and that just human um, decency element seems to have disappeared. Yeah, I mean, certainly, it, it, you know, Sheila Copps took her shots back in the day. I mean, it's not unusual that politics is ugly, but it was generally speaking before it was politicians taking shots at politicians. But again, everyone's got a pulpit now and a platform. And so people have the freedom to say and do whatever they want. But then you show up at someone's office. And this has happened to both women and men on the left and the right. So it's not new, but it does seem um, and maybe it's the frustration of current times that people just feel like they can just kind of unload. Yeah, definitely. And I mean, it's, it's for sure one of the main, I think, challenges to getting people to run for office. And I've been involved um, in many elections with different political parties in recruiting candidates. And I can tell you it's a problem for every party um, across the board. And one of the main reasons uh, people don't want to run is they don't want to be a target. They don't want to be um, under the limelight. They don't like the idea that, um, you know, their family could be attacked or that they could be criticized for something that has nothing to do with their job or their performance at work. And it's, I mean, I don't blame them. It's, it's, it's horrible. Um, some of the, the things that, different politicians have had to go through. And I know a number of, uh, of women politicians from every party, um, you know, who have talked to and, you know, having death threats made against them or, you know, threats of sexual violence and, you know, having their parents harassed or their siblings or their children. Um, it's for a lot of people not worth it. Yeah, I mean, look, I'm the last to be a fan of Catherine, um, you know, uh, McKenna, her politics drive me crazy. She drives me crazy. Uh, but at the same time, 
I will defend her job and and let her do it. And I say, you know, don't show up because today it's her. Tomorrow it will be somebody else. It'll be the prime minister. As we saw someone coming up onto the property of Rideau uh, Hall last a uh, couple of weeks ago with, with uh, a gun or several guns. Um, do you blame the politics out of the United States or is that too easy? I definitely think it's too easy. I mean, in many ways in Canada, I think we're really lucky in that the media climate at least seems to um, see a line between people's personal lives and their professional lives. Like we don't have the same sort of tabloid culture that the U.S. and Great Britain have, for example. Um, So there's a, a level of decency that we have here. I think really the thing that has um, downgraded the entire political climate is, and I hate to, to sound like I'm just repeating myself, but it's it's social media, it's Twitter. It is so invasive and abusive. And the, you know, the reality is people can make fake accounts. They don't have to use their real names. Um, they, you know, can say whatever they want and they have direct access to the people that they're trying to abuse and torment. And it's really hard to ignore it. We don't live in a, in a world where you can just turn your phone off and, and shut your eyes to what's happening online. It's just part of your daily life now. Yeah, not to mention protest has become much, much more organized because of social media. And so if you really want to go after somebody, you just put their address up on social media. Exactly. And say, hey, so, go to Montori. Mm-hmm. I mean, Montori's the latest example of someone who, you know, had a protest take place at his home where his neighbors had to put up with people just being complete jerks. Kathleen Wynne has had that. The mayor of Hamilton's had that. And when you get into the world of doxing, which mm-hmm. I am so against because you're basically weaponizing, um, you know, social media to destroy someone's life and take away their safety. I mean, there there used to be limits in politics. You know, we don't talk about kids or spouses or, yeah, or exactly. houses. Those rules don't exist anymore. And so at what point do social media, do the Twitters, the Facebook, do they bear some responsibility? I think that they bear a lot of responsibility. I mean, I think that these social media platforms need to um, you know, be responsible for the fact that they have a lot of power in promoting voices and that you know, eradicating abuse, people who use their platforms to dox, to harass, to abuse, um, shouldn't be allowed to do that. Just like you in normal life, like you're not allowed to just show up at someone's office and start berating them and abusing them. You're not allowed to show up at someone's house and start you know, yelling nasty things in the front door and throwing stuff at their door. Like you're not allowed to send threatening and harassing letters in the mail. So these rules that have existed for a really long time um, need to translate to the online world. Well, they do. And you're right. There used to be a lot of rules. I mean, there are certainly rules that I as a broadcaster have to abide by. I certainly can't go and just, you know, say whatever I want because I will be, you know, sued for libel, defamation. Uh, Those same rules don't apply to anybody else, which is very frustrating because while my tongue gets tied and I have to stay within the boundaries, there are lots of people who can put out whatever they want, true or not, these days about just about any anybody. And damaging? Oh, well, there's no repercussion. Yeah. And I think like originally, you know, many years ago when social media was new, there was this idea that like, okay, some nameless troll on the internet saying something or posting photos or attacking people is, is going to be meaningless and won't have a big impact. But that's not true anymore. Like you mentioned doxing and this idea of like 
coordinated campaigns to berate and abuse people is actually can have a lot of power, a lot of damage and can really, um, you know, ruin someone's, you know, professional life. So the consequences that flow from that kind of conduct are actually just as serious, I think, as, you know, a newspaper reporting, you know, saying something wrong or, you know, a broadcaster saying something libelous. And, you know, the, I know Facebook and Twitter have made efforts to try to crack down on this kind of behavior, but they, they're straddling a really fine line where they're tr- still trying to keep their platforms, um, you know, open and yeah, free, well, you, you, there's free speech. Free, yeah, exactly. But, but again, there is a line, you, you know, you can't just say, well, Catherine Stewart, you know, sh- she breaks the law. It's not true. You can't just say that, but people will because they know that it's not going to get policed and shut down. Uh, so again, we're not supposed to. The rules are on the books, but again, because they're not followed up on, um, it just seems we're into this gray zone um, where civility is dead. And I do have concerns. I get the guy's frustration. I understand people are angry. I feel. I get the sense, and I, I totally understand that they feel this government ignores them, belittles them, talks down to them. I get all of that. But I say the only way you get your revenge is at the ballot box. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, the hate crime thing is is interesting. That um, particular provision of the criminal code um, is rarely used. Um, there's only, you know, a small handful of hate crime cases that have ever fully gone forward in Canada. Um, so it's not something that's utilized very much because it's very difficult to prove. And they, you know, the the courts actually, you know, the prosecution has to actually prove that the number one motivating factor was someone's identifiable group or race or gender or whatever. So, um, but I think that, you know, the police are trying to to send a strong message. Um, You know, this is a public figure. And, you know, Catherine McKenna, I don't agree with her politics, but the amount of sexist abuse that she receives is just absolutely staggering. It's appalling. Um, I, I think you have to have a lot of strength and thick skin to endure it. I mean, I know I experience my fair share. I know you probably do, Alex. Um, it's really, really hard to deal with on a daily basis. And as much as you try to say, well, I don't care, that stuff doesn't get to me. It, we're all human and it's impossible not you know, not to have it bother you. At the end of the day, yes, the computer goes off and you're still left with those thoughts of what people say. And sometimes it can get very scary. Well, we'll see where this takes us. Catherine, appreciate your time on this. Thanks for having me. This is Catherine Stewart joining us. And uh, I don't know if we could bring civility back. The question is very simple. The prime minister claims that he put the entire WE program on hold on May the 8th. Minister Chagger, did anyone in the government at that moment direct we to stop administering the program when the Prime Minister did that on May 8th? Yes or no? Madam Chair, that was a lengthy question, but I'll provide a short answer, not that I'm aware of. That's strange. He said, whoa, whoa, whoa. And the minister in charge must have heard what? Go, go, go? Uh, Maybe she heard nothing. Of course, the opposition at the Finance Committee today uh, was pushing some of the we players to clarify on some of their inconsistencies that just keep arising over this whole scandal. And so we heard again today from Bardish Chagger. That was the minister you heard right there, who apparently never heard the prime minister put the brakes on this program that he was so deeply concerned about, this near billion dollar program 
she was totally in charge in and a program that had already paid we 30 million dollars before it had even been signed off by cabinet because apparently that's how we do business in ottawa and where is that money who knows hasn't been paid back the minister didn't know about that either again more inconsistencies. Michael Barrett is the conservative ethics critic. He was at the hearing, part of the uh, hearings today. He joins us now. Good to have you, sir. Thanks for having me on. What was the, um, I mean, did we learn anything new today? I mean, there were a few pieces that stuck out for me is that this is the inconsistencies are still very inconsistent. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, and it seems like um, everyone wants someone else to be... The, everyone is looking to throw someone under the bus. Nobody wants to be the person under the bus. Uh, and uh, and and uh, there were there were little pieces of uh, of of information that um, that were revealed. But I mean, to to have government ministers saying that uh, they don't know how much money uh, they gave to the WE organization, and they then they don't know why they haven't got it back yet. Uh, they don't know. Um, they don't know who is responsible for any of this. This it, it almost seems like. Um, you know, everyone just uh, woke up one morning. They they, uh, they were all um, telepathically aligned that this program needed to happen. No one no one can say, well, this is this is this is who presented the idea. This is where the idea came from. They all just kind of uh, knew that uh, the Canada Student Service grant needed to happen, and they just kind of all knew that it needed to be the WE organization that administered it. And now that it's fallen apart. Um, you know, uh, they you know uh, things they do things differently, but um, nobody needs to be held accountable for it. It's it's pretty wild when you're looking at a billion dollars um, that was to be spent on a program that was said to be essential for our economy, and the minister whose name uh, is on the uh, is on the letterhead, Minister Qualtro, she wasn't even the minister that's responsible for it. The minister for diversity, inclusion, and youth was the one who signed off. Uh, and was given special uh, spe- through an order in council was given special um, uh, signing authority to be able to do just just this program. So it's well, it's very a junior strange. minister. Mm-hmm. Yeah, very, very, yeah, minister. <laughs> I mean, that's not to disparage her, but she's a junior minister, and I have a hard time thinking that a junior minister is given that much power to just kind of do something because you know the government apparently told we that yeah, go ahead as of May fifth. Prime minister still has no idea this even exists. But then slams on the brakes, says stop this for two weeks because he was so concerned about the optics. And then she, the minister in charge, knows nothing about that. And we's already running the program. I mean, is that what we're actually supposed to believe? Yeah, and that's what they said today, that that uh, a committee of cabinet um, review, approved the item to go to cabinet. So that was on May 5th. And that was the day, and no one, no one will say that they told we they were allowed to start spending money. The we organization says that they were told they could incur eligible expenses starting that date. And then the prime minister, as you said, slams the brakes on three days later and says, "Ooh, this, you know, we need our eyes dotted and our t's crossed." And we kept spending. The we organization kept spending money, and uh, no one can say what. Uh, what exactly the prime minister was looking for uh, in those in that two week period that ultimately um, he was satisfied with because they approved it anyway. 
Right. And to your point about, you know, the program itself, I mean, Ian Shugart, who's the uh, top guy at the Privy Council, I mean, he was pressed again on, on due diligence, even though the prime minister apparently was so concerned that, whoa, whoa, whoa. I mean, he gives us a little act. How He was so alarmed about this. So he was so concerned about the optics and he wanted to make sure all the I's are dotted, the T's are crossed. And Ian Shugart wants us to believe that no due, dil- due diligence was done, despite the fact that even a basic check on this charity would have raised a hundred red flags. I mean, is that possible? I mean, can can he be that dumb or can they be that dumb or is he actually willing to, to go under the bus? Well, uh, look, they said that the due diligence was done before it got to cabinet on the 8th and then further due diligence was said to have been done between the 8th and uh, and the next time the cabinet met, I think it was on the 22nd of May. But in that, we, you know, we we've heard we've heard we keep hearing more. Um they didn't have the organization didn't have the ability to deliver this program in Quebec or in any mm-hmm. uh, French speaking community. Uh their you know, their board had been fired or resigned. They'd gotten rid of a huge chunk of their workforce laying off you know, hundreds of uh, of employees. They weren't meeting bank covenants. They were they were in you know financial trouble. We we're hearing all of this, and so this this organization is said to have gotten the best due diligence uh, before it was presented to cabinet. And then when the prime minister wanted a second round of due diligence, it seemed to have passed his uh, his standards test. But nobody really knows, and and there's no document uh, that lays out what due diligence was done. Um, and uh, and we're told that uh, that this was in a, in an extraordinary time. All of the standard due diligence processes were followed. And I think that if there's you know a big takeaway for me, it's that um, uh, maybe we need another look at that uh, at what that process is like. Because if we're giving forking over a billion dollars to be handed out uh, to to an organization, and and we don't even know if they're able to pay their uh, meet their financial obligations, and if they have a functioning uh, board. Um, we should probably take another look at, at how things are done at the highest level of government. Well, come on, Equifax. One check with Equifax would have raised a few uh, alarm bells. I mean, uh, right. it, it, you know, the fact that it was a foundation, it wasn't actually the charity, should have been the biggest red flag for Ian Sugar. But of course, mm-hmm. a numbered company that's never had any charity record and, and, and is not apparently setting off alarm bells. But Chagger did contradict herself today because when she first testified, she said she had not talked to the Kielbergers about any program on April 7th which was five days before Trudeau would announce this program that he just apparently learned about. And then apparently now she says, well, we had a 30-minute phone call with Craig Kielberger on April 17th, but we're to believe they didn't talk about this program. And yet, and yet like, the what, the next day he magically sends a proposal to the public service, to the Privy Council that's immediately adopted? Is that how it works? Because, man, I, <laughs> if it's that easy, a lot of Canadians should apply for money. Yeah, you know, absolutely. And, and I was actually the member who asked uh, Minister Chagger that question at the Finance Committee, and then I asked her the follow-up question today. And I said, you know, when you were at the Finance Committee, I asked you if you spoke to, uh, if you spoke to the WE organization. And I guess I used the term uh, Canada Student Service Grant, which hadn't been in, invented yet. And so you, you said, uh, nope, didn't talk to them. And then uh, we, we later learned that, in fact, you did speak to them. But because the words Canada Student Service Grant weren't used in that order, um, you thought that you were 
to maybe technically uh, telling the truth. And, uh, and she didn't seem to think that she'd done anything wrong and thought that she was um, quite clever with her, with her response. But it's just so unbelievable that this is, this is the attitude that, um, that Canadians, that, that taxpayers' funds are, are being treated with. You know, the official opposition is exercising its obligation to hold the government account, to, to be a check against, uh, against the executive branch in our government. And, uh, and, and the minister suddenly has this revelation about this 30, yeah, we had this 30-minute phone call, not really sure, I don't know who was on it, oh, you know, uh, it was just me. Um, actually, there was someone on with one of the, with one of the Kielbergers. Um, yeah, no, I, I was just there to listen. Okay, well, what did you talk about? Well, no, my door is always open. Uh, you know, it's just it, unbelievable, really. And so where does this go from here? I know that they have had um, to, for- to hand over thousands and thousands of documents that are with lawyers now being uh, redacted. Um, they're probably all going to come back solid black. But where does this now go? Where does the investigation take us? So um, the, the Ethics Committee uh, passed a motion. Uh, you know, usually when committees conduct a study, um, the witness... Uh, the witnesses are decided at in-camera subcommittee meetings, um, and then that's concurred in by the committee. Well, in this motion that started this ethics committee study, uh, Justin Trudeau was called uh, as a witness. And so he has appeared at the finance committee. He has not even responded to the clerk of, uh, of, of this standing committee with respect to his um, the, the request that he appear. So there's, there's more work to be done and more witnesses to be heard from uh, at the Ethics Committee. The Finance Committee continues its hearings tomorrow. Uh, we know that other uh, parliamentary committees are going to continue their study as well. And, and look, there are now um, investigations or requests for investigations that have been made to, uh, to uh, the uh, Commissioner at Elections Canada, to uh, the um, Conflict of Interest and Ethics Commissioner, to the Royal Canadian Mounted Police, to the uh, Lobbying Commissioner, to uh, the Privacy Commissioner. There are, uh, you know, I it's think hard to I, I, the, the procurement ombudsman, and I'm going to leave yeah. some out, but it's virtually every independent officer of parliament in Ottawa is now uh, seized with uh, examining the the facts in this case, so there there are there are witnesses appearing at at, uh, at finance the finance committee tomorrow as well. Ministers will will appear there. I think uh, Minister Ng and Minister Qualtro will appear. It'll be the first yeah. time Minister Ng has testified about this. But and she's a key um, figure, yeah. Yeah, and and that's something that kind of uh, came out, uh, you know, through this process. So it, it it might not still capture the front page of the newspaper each day, but um, but certainly this this story isn't going away for the Liberals, and uh, and it sounds like um, it sounds like the bus uh, might be coming for uh, for the finance minister next. Well, they have a whole fleet of buses. They might have a shortfall on them. All right, um, Mr. Baird, I appreciate you joining us tonight. Thank you. Okay, thanks so much for your time. That is uh, Michael Barrett joining us. He is the ethics critic for the Conservatives. And uh, again, there's a big player tomorrow happening with Minister Ng, because she should shed light on this. It may not be the biggest story making the front pages, but it darn well matters, because we're talking near billion dollars. And if this is how they do business in uh, Ottawa in a minority situation, can you imagine what they did as a majority? Hello? Well, who are Jesse Sebastian and Kyle Fogeard? Well... That's who they are and why they're being called dangerous in these COVID-19 times. Big guess. Um, You may not have heard about this Ontario duo, but chances are your kids know who they are because they're 
influencers, you know, those big YouTube stars. In this case, they go by the name of Nelk and they go out and prank people. And they're followed now by millions, including A-list celebrities who then bolster their profile. But now health officials are worried about what they call bro tests, where they post things online and they're very Canadiana, but they have a huge following across the border. And what they do is they call for their followers to have big gatherings, parties, break COVID-19 restrictions. You know, they basically break all the rules, whip up the anti-masking crowd and the antivirus believers because they don't care about safety. They care about clicks and likes. What do you know? Paul Davies is with us now, social networking, safety. And Paul, I mean, how do they get away with this stuff? They get away with it because they get the likes, they get the comments, and they get the following. And so when you look at what brands are looking for, for and I'm going to say quote-unquote influencers, they want to have an audience. They want to know what the demographics of their audience is. And in this case, their demographics are Gen Z and bottom-end millennials. I don't, I don't think upper-end millennials are following them, but I could be wrong. But Gen Z, bottom-end millennials, they want to see how many of them are interacting and you, X amount of sponsors will say, you know what, that is the account that I want to promote a product on. And so I'm going to go after these guys. Now, what they're doing is, and, and this is baffling because I, I don't know what, what advertiser would want to spend their dollars with people that are completely reckless. And these two guys are completely reckless. And so when you post information like, let's have this massive party, we're not going to cover our faces, no masks, we're going to, I don't know who would want to sponsor them, but they do have a loyal following. You, I'll give them that. But advertisers, I don't know which one would actually want to pay out. Will they lose advertisers because of this? 1,000%. Will they gain some? Mm -hmm. They will gain somewhere along the line, and that's what keeps these guys going. Because remember, COVID has caused a lot of these quote-unquote influencers to lose advertisers because they're not out there. Aver these influencers need to be in people's faces every day to be relevant. If they go quiet for a week, for two weeks, they become yesterday's news. They need to be relevant. How do you be relevant? Go and create a controversy. Let's have a party. Let's say something no one would dare say during these times. Let's make the news, whether it's positive or negative. We are going to be relevant. Yeah, and lots of people try to be relevant. You got a chair girl who um, thought, you know, throwing a chair off would get her the clicks and likes. And she's made, you know, a few minutes of fame off of that. It's not going to probably have any longevity that I know of. I mean, I, I'm way too old for these guys. So I, I didn't, I've never heard of them. I'm still confounded that one can become a YouTube star because you're an idiot. Like I'm just, it just, I find it just numbing that you can gain millions and millions of followers for being a complete jackass. You get the clicks and likes. And like you said, you get the advertisers, which is odd because in such a controversial time with cancel culture being everywhere, um, advertisers are always supposed to like, they're so nervous about who they advertise with. Then why would they then hitch their wagon uh, to these morons? Well, Jake Paul, um, I don't know if you recall his name, but he kind of led the way for, I'm going to do stuff that's controversial. I'm going to apologize for it once I'm outed. I'm going to ask for everyone's sympathy. I will get everybody's sympathy. I will rebrand myself, and I'll do it all over again. He's been very successful at that, and people have kind of followed in his footsteps. Now, again, remember who's following these guys. Gen Z, bottom end millennials. What are they buying? What are advertisers seeking? I don't know, because that's a mystery, because we don't know, you know, in, in reality, what they're being paid, how they're being paid. Can it be music? 100% it could be 
individuals in the music field. I mean, just look at the video that was released by Cardi B and I forgot the other singer, the most mm-hmm. sexualized video you've ever seen on YouTube, which has gathered yeah. over 70 million views in just a couple of days. Yeah. And YouTube is putting that on the front page. So someone is paying for it and it could be these music types, but we, at the end of the day, we don't know. But again, so long as you are relevant, there's going to be an advertiser. And again, interesting because, you know, cancel culture, like you stated, sponsors are dropping people on Fox News like crazy. If you say something wrong, it could be on CNN. It could be anywhere. But in this genre, that doesn't seem to be the case. And it's really, a, it's a great mystery because there is a market for it. Unfortunately, what they're doing right now with their influence and their audience, because if you look at the COVID numbers, they keep saying mm-hmm. that the group that in, that's impacting the most are the 22, 30 to 35 year olds. Well, guess who's following these guys? And so yeah. they're doing an immense amount of damage with their influence. Can you imagine if these guys took their influence and actually did something positive for the world, how much better it could be? And that is the dilemma that I struggle with when I try and educate teens and adults, which is there's good and there's bad, but some of them just gravitate to this. I don't want to use the word, but idiocy of this culture. Yeah, it's interesting because it comes down to, I guess, the argument over regulation. And I am about free speech, free expression, so I'm not going to shut these guys up. They can say whatever they want, but that does not mean, Paul, that there are not consequences uh, or can't be consequences. If I went on the radio and spewed the BS that these guys do, telling people not to wear their masks or go into crowds, and I'd be off the air in, like, it would be breaking broadcast, you know, standard, um, you know, council standards, I would be, I would be gone. You just can't get away with that when you're regulated. Um, But the argument of regulating these social media platforms is a big conversation. I just don't know how you do it without silencing speech and taking away freedom of expression. But again, in a health crisis, if you've got idiots like this, you know, stirring the pot and clearly having an effect, you know, what's the consequence? Where's the boundary? The only way you will get these individuals to change is by not paying them. So when they see their dollars drawing up, they change their tune. So a lot of these individuals reinvent themselves on a regular basis. When they see one advertiser drawing up, they need to say, what are these kids looking for? What motivates them? And then they go to the other advertiser. So they know they do. They're very good at reinventing themselves. The problem is it has to dry up before they do so. So if, if these guys were shut down in terms of, let's say the revenue base completely dried up, they would take a completely different twist. Or, you know what, Alex? They're so well off. They have so much in the bank, they could care less. And they're mm-hmm. just doing it because it's who we are. It's our age, a bracket that we're in. And this is what we like to do. We like to party, go out there, not care, go against the man, you know. And you can change that. But if you, if you want to change, you have to dry up the revenue stream because these guys are dependent on it. And that's why they're doing what they're doing, to stay relevant, to get that um, – audience base that will give them the revenue stream saying, hey, advertisers, look, 5 million people just like this photo um, you want in because you could be the next person to get a piece of the pie. So unless you you know this, you will not change these guys. Right. But you see this in all the schools, the young minds, young kids, they want this instant fame because it came comes with, you know, adulation, but it also comes with dollars. Uh, and these guys have, you know, merchandising lines. I would not be surprised at all if they got some kind of TV show out of it, whatever. Uh, but the bottom line is, it's this um, click, like, make a buck, uh, damn the consequences. And I just don't know where, where we're going to finally see kind of a pushback against it. 
Because well, it's gone on a lot longer it. than I thought it would be. You know, you, you can't regulate it. That will never happen. And the only time you'll see consequence, like I said, when the well dries up, and if there's, let's say in this situation, if there's a mass um, situation of a lot of people contracting COVID, that could be the turning point. Is it going to happen? We don't know. But at the end of the day, it has to hit their pocket for them to change their ways. You know, it's really interesting. You know, some guy will go into a Tim Hortons and not wear a mask and his life will be destroyed because someone will post it online. These guys go on YouTube and purposely encourage people to, to put others at risk and they get rewarded for it. One thousand percent that we cannot figure this out. That person going to Tim Hortons will be fired the next day from their job because they were disrespectful. They had, they had no courtesy towards human life. These guys are completely different. They go and promote it, and yet they get paid. It's it's really a juxtaposition that I can't understand. Well, I don't understand it either, but I'm far, far too old for it. These young'uns today, Paul, they are just dangerous. (laughs) I sound like an old lady. All right, we'll see what happens to them, but uh, I won't be clicking on it. Thank you, sir. My pleasure. Anytime. That's Paul Davies joining us from the Social Networking Safety It's way beyond me. I just don't get it. But nonetheless, I'm not their uh, demographic. Up next, your energy bills are going up. You wouldn't know it, of course, because we, the taxpayers, just keep helping to hide the costs. Who's going to fix the problem everyone in charge wants to ignore? We will talk about that next. Stay with us here on Point. Alex Pearson. This is Global News Radio. That's your podcast for today. You can hear On Point live Monday through Friday, 6.30 to 10. I'm Alex Pearson.